Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Welcome. You have made it to episode one of season five of Meet the Press Reports. Thanks for being here. Theocracy. It isn't a word you often hear in American politics these days, but given the religious rhetoric coming from some Republican candidates this year, it doesn't feel as far-fetched or hyperbolic as it would have been in the past. Frankly, it feels possible. There are candidates embracing the idea that whatever the First Amendment actually says about the free exercise or establishment of religion, that this wall between church and state should actually come down. And not only that, these folks argue, the wall was actually never supposed to be there in the first place. In fact, here's Lauren Boebert. She's a freshman member of Congress from Colorado. She was speaking this summer to congregants. Here's what she said. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of the separation of church and state junk. She's not alone. The Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania, the nation's fifth most populous state, said this to his supporters. So much for this, this myth of separation of church and state. That's right. And here's, that's the same position that Michael Perutka, the Republican nominee for Maryland Attorney General, he's, it's a position he's taken since at least 2014 when he called the separation of church and state, quote, the great lie. And he added, there can be no separation of God from government because he, capital H there, created it. That would have been news to the founders, especially Thomas Jefferson, who was the first of the founders to use the phrase, the wall of separation metaphor, to describe the First Amendment's religious freedom protections. Other Republicans, though, are openly embracing Christian nationalism. We need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Even the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade has religious overtones. It has been cheered on by conservatives on religious grounds. And in fact, it's actually led some liberals to look to the religious freedom restoration laws, many of them vigorously opposed over the last decade, to challenge, to use these laws as an attempt to challenge these statewide abortion bans that are being passed around this country. So as a country, we are entering unknown territory. What is next? Where is this movement heading? My colleague, NBC News correspondent Ann Thompson, traveled to Moscow, Idaho. It's a blue enclave, small blue enclave, and an otherwise ruby red state that's grappling, that has been grappling for years with questions about the role religion should play in the public square and everyday life. In northern Idaho's dunes of grains and grass, a battle without bullets over the direction of a town. I believe that what's happening in Moscow is a microcosm of what's happening all across the country that started here maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than what's happening across the country. And that is? 
Um, well, just the radical division. I don't think our nation has been this divided since 1859. It's divided and it's inflamed. And uh, that whole process, I think, began to be visible here a decade or a decade and a half before it became radically visible in the nation as a whole. Pastor Doug Wilson leads Christchurch in what he calls a Cold War civil war. Our rights come to us from God and not from the government. Fighting in, of all places, a college town. Moscow, home to University of Idaho and just eight miles from Washington State University, exudes a live and let live vibe. One of the interesting things about Moscow is how these two entities live side by side, and I mean literally. Right behind me, that's the offices of the Christ Church. And right next door is the headquarters for the local Democratic Party. From this former art house movie theater, Wilson leads his campaign to make Moscow a Christian town. Idaho is a very red state. Moscow was historically a very blue dot in this red state. And so consequently, the fact that uh, we've done this has been disruptive in the minds of some, but the feasibility of um, um, evangelizing in Moscow had to do with the importance of the university and the size of the town. So in your version of a Christian town, would there be a place for non-believers? Oh, absolutely. Would would there be a place for same-sex couples? But you mean legally? Yes. You mean like uh, marriage? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no marriage. But there'd be uh, same-sex couples. No marriage, even though it's the law of the land in the United States. Uh, just like Roe used to be, right? In my uh, belief system, in our doctrinal stand, and what we believe the Bible teaches, homosexuality is not only a choice but a sinful one. Yes. It is a muscular, masculine-led vision of Christianity. Scripture tells the man to provide, protect, and love. Scripture tells the woman to honor, help, and submit. Expounded on his show, Man Rampant. Men are going to be dominant, no matter what you do. And articulated in his blogs. This one saying marriage is a little kingdom, and the husband is a little king. A wife should be, should be submissive to her husband, as Paul teaches in multiple places, yes. So a wife should be submissive to her husband. But in the blog post that you just cited... Um, I made a special point of saying that the woman exercises authority over the selection of the one that she's going to submit to. So when you say wives should be submissive to their husbands, does this mean, why shouldn't they be equal? Um, Well, because God created us a certain way. So we want to fit with the design. Former Mayor Nancy Cheney says the community has endured decades of Wilson's often incendiary ideas. When some uh, kind of outrageous statements were made uh, early on about uh, Southern slavery as it was, as a, as a mutually affectionate relationship between master and slave, or saying that members of our LGBTQ community, uh, trans people, should be exiled or possibly stoned, that catches our attention. Wilson says he was misunderstood, rebutting the many controversies on his website, writing he does not believe in the death penalty for homosexual acts or that slavery was a positive good. But the visible and invisible lines being drawn here and elsewhere across the country are setting off alarm bells for many faith leaders.
Do you consider Christchurch a church? I don't. Really? I really don't. What is it then? Um, I, I see it as a, as a, a dominionist cult. Reverend Dr. Elizabeth Stevens leads the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Palouse. In the public square, I don't see them representing Christianity. I don't see them representing the values that, that I find in the Bible. I see them representing patriarchy. I see them uh, fighting the culture war. Stevens' position in that war is visible for all to see a stained-glass rainbow chalice. Wilson fights with the printed word. A prolific author, he's written dozens of books, all distributed by his own Canon Press. It publishes more than a thousand different titles, half of which are books and materials serving hundreds of thousands of homeschool and Christian students nationwide. Wilson laughs off the cult accusation, but the former Navy man embraces culture warrior. You can't have a naval warfare without ships, and you can't have tank warfare without tanks. And as I tell Christians all around the country, you can't have culture war unless you have a culture. Our tagline is all of Christ for all of life. So we want to be seven-day-a-week, 24-hour Christians in everything we do, and a distinctively Christian culture is forming here. Um, and not reclusive and not cultic, but it's distinct. Here in Moscow, Wilson and Christ Church have built a multi-million dollar enterprise that includes a K-12 school, a publishing house, a college, and a streaming show. Pursuits that some worry will change the very character of this town. What scares me is that he is making Moscow into a Wilson town. Keely Emerine Mix is a former pastor. What worries me is not that the stamp of Christ might be wrongly shoved down the throats of my, my neighbors here in Moscow, but that the stamp in the foot of Doug Wilson will be wrongly and is being wrongly crammed down their throats or standing on their neck. I think that his influence on this town has been despicable. Aubrey and Wyatt Knickerbocker met two years after her family moved to Moscow seeking a Christian town. We found what at first we thought was a very welcoming community. There was something every day, something new, some sort of baby shower or something for the school. You get very swept up in all of it. Until they heard this message from another pastor in the church. Women should wear women's clothes. They shouldn't wear pants. Shouldn't have short hair. Shouldn't have short hair. Shouldn't, um, men shouldn't wear earrings. No one should have tattoos. And then there was this, a psalm sing in the middle of the pandemic protesting the local mask mandate, retweeted by then-President Trump. That was when I realized that these were not people trying to spread awareness or trying to spread the good news of Christ. It was people trying to say, look at us, we are so oppressed. Did you feel betrayed when you realized that? How would you describe your feelings? Yes, very betrayed, because I've grown up in the Christian church and it never occurred to me that a church could be wrong and how wrong they could be. They stopped attending Christ Church. Aubrey says she was attacked online. Now they actively avoid patronizing businesses run by church members. If it was another church that owned it and they just happened to have some beliefs that I didn't agree with, that's fine. But when you're hurting people, that's 
when you have really crossed many lines. Are you being judged on your faith rather than your product? I believe 100% that that's true. Josh Flickner says he came to Moscow seeking a Christian community and found it in Christ Church. But his business, Journey's End Cafe, is paying the price for where he worships. I really wanted this place to be actually a bridge builder in the community. And so, yeah, it's it's really a bummer that um, that a lot of people in the community are just so full of bigotry that they do not want to even try to build those bridges. He says his workers are threatened by crank calls and his future by a social media campaign calling out businesses run by church members. Look at what people say about my business and then pretend like I was not a white heterosexual Christian male. That would be a hate crime. Anywhere else in the country, against any other type of person, that would be a hate crime. Three weeks after this interview, Flickner announced he's closing the cafe. So how close is Wilson to reaching his goal of turning Moscow into a Christian town? Well, no one is quite sure, but everyone has an opinion. Honestly, it's almost laughable, only because you're talking about a minute percentage of the population. George Scandalos and Brandy Sullivan own restaurants and businesses on Main Street. As someone who was served on the city council, I haven't seen any traction gained in that area. There, the last two elections, there were some um, candidates who were members of Christ Church, and those elections were uh, very uneven. <laughs> and um, I would call it a landslide. Uh, there you go. In yeah. defeat, yes. You have 700 active households, about 2,000 church attendees. This is a city of 25,000 people. Is the way to reach your goal to bring in more people or to convert the hearts and minds of those who already live here? It would be, it would be both. Yeah, we, we would want to persuade the people who are already here, and we, would, we want to welcome the people who arrive here. Like many other churches, Wilson's deals with accusations of sex abuse, including a deacon this summer pleading guilty to a federal charge of child pornography, and Wilson marrying a released child molester to a church member. The thing that upsets people is not the child molestation offense, because there are 20, 30 sex offenders in Moscow, and everybody knows the name of one of them because of where he goes to church. Right? The ones who don't go to church, they're all okay. They stay out of the newspapers. But the one who is repentant and wants to live right and is, you know, uh, straightening, straightened out, we're going to go after him because this is, um, uh, because they're, the target is actually me. Wilson, if anything, seems energized by the criticism and attention and undeterred from his goal. Do you see expanding this microcosm? from Moscow to the un full United States? Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to envision how that might happen. I think, it would be, I think it would be wonderful if it did. So if there were a reformation and a revival, that's something we pray for regularly. And if what is happening here caught fire and spread elsewhere, I, I would be very, very grateful. We're gonna look at how these dynamics are playing out in our national politics and how the forces of Christian nationalism are likely to impact where we are headed with both political parties. Next. Here's a question. 
Have you ever been prescribed a medication? Most likely, yes. Well, what about this question? Did you understand how it worked? The way your medication works in your body shouldn't be a mystery. Learn how Vivgart, Fgartigamod Alpha FCAB works by visiting vivgart.com slash MOA. That's V-Y-V-G-A-R-T dot com slash M-O-A. Brought to you by Argenix. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back. We've ingested a lot, so let's do some digestion. We brought together a panel of experts. NBC News correspondent Ann Thompson, who was just in Moscow, Idaho. Andrew Whitehead, he's a professor of sociology at IUPUI in Indianapolis, and he's the lead author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Former Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello of Florida is also an NBC News political analyst. And Anthea Butler is chair of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of White Evangelical Racism. Welcome to all of you. And let me start here, mm-hmm. which is... Um, you went there. You did this piece. There's a lot of concern about what's happening. After doing this piece, are we making too much of what's happening with Christian nationalism? Or is this the beginning of something? No, I don't think we're making too much of it, Chuck. I asked um, Reverend Stevens, who's in the piece, who opposes what Pastor Wilson is doing. I asked her, I said, are you crazed that I only show up, people like me only show up to ask questions about Christchurch. And she said, no, she feels that the country needs to know about this, Mm -hmm. that there are people out there who want to take the country back to a more Christian culture. Um, And so I don't think I don't think it's we're making too much of it. It certainly is a strong movement. You see it in mm-hmm. our politics today. Will it have legs? It seems to, at least in Moscow, have reached a certain, um, it's reached its limits, I think. And it will not grow any further unless they import people. Andrew, do you think there are degrees of Christian nationalism? Yeah, there really are. So when we survey the American public, we find that Christian nationalism is really a a spectrum um, where you have Americans on the very upper end who strongly embrace these ideas that the U.S. is a Christian nation, Mm -hmm. that it plays a special role in God's um, work in the world globally, um, all of those things. And then you have Americans that... Um, you know, think Christianity should play a, a role in American society, but wouldn't go so far as to mm-hmm. say it should be privileged. And then we find that there are many Americans that resist and reject Christian nationalism as well. And so the important thing is that it's not a binary, either or, right. but that it's a spectrum of, of belief and strength of embrace of these different ideologies and ideals. Yeah, Anthea, where would you draw the line? Because there are many, there are many people on the left side of the political spectrum who say, yeah, you should incorporate more teachings of the Bible mm-hmm. into your public policy. But what is that line where it becomes Christian nationalism? I think the line becomes when people become so dogmatic that they want to step over into a violent space. And what I mean by that is the people who want to impose something on someone else. I think one of the great things about America is that it's a democracy, right? And that America got started by people who were escaping religious autonomy so they could have religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I think is really important here in the delineation between what is Christian nationalism 
nationalism and what is not Christian nationalism is what are people trying to impose? Are they trying to use their Christian nationalism to do a takeover? Mm-hmm. And then finally, who gets to be included as a Christian you know, in right. America? And I think that's a really important part. Carl, so I want to put together two things. One is from a former colleague of yours, Adam Kinzinger. But before I get to his comments, uh, I want to play a piece of sound from uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Al Mohler who absolutely embraces this label. Take a listen. We have the left uh, routinely speaking of me and of others as uh, as Christian nationalists, as if we're supposed to be running from that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm not about to run from that. And then Adam Kinzinger tweeted when Marjorie Taylor Greene said something similar, we need to prove to people we are the party of Christian nationalism. He tweeted, he then quoted, he put in what he says is a quote from the Taliban that says, we are the party of Islamic nationalism. And then he writes, I oppose the American Taliban, and he then signals Kevin McCarthy and his. What is happening inside the GOP on this issue? Well, what Kinzinger is pointing out is the hypocrisy in all of this. It has been Republicans and conservatives over the years who have criticized other countries, like Muslim countries, for imposing religious beliefs and and practices, and also for attacking communist countries for imposing atheism and banning people from practicing their religion. So... What's happened here? That this has become a part of the culture wars. And this is the bunker mentality that Donald Trump and other conservatives have pushed a lot of the population into thinking that they're under assault. And I think, look, we have to be sensitive. The pace of cultural change in our country has been pretty rapid in recent uh, decades, I think. Depends who you are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like it's rapid for some, yeah, it's really slow for others. I mean, you know. But we have to understand that some people increasingly feel excluded, mm-hmm. left behind, and obviously that generates a lot of anxiety, and that's why people act out in these ways. But when it comes to our leaders, I think Kinzinger is right. I mean, we have to be consistent, and we can't be hypocritical in saying, you know, these countries shouldn't do this and that, but it's okay for us to do it here because it's the religion that we prefer. Andrew, what do you make of this active debate inside the GOP? Yeah, it's really fascinating um, because really when we look at it, Christian nationalism, and, and Anthea brought this up earlier, is, is about power. And when we think of that in terms of a democracy and a functioning democracy, um, it's about sharing power and playing by the same rules. And so with Christian nationalism, we find over and over that if it comes down to democracy or power, they're going to choose power every time. And mm. so this idea of, of a country uh, for the people, by the people, it's really a country for a particular people, by a particular mm-hmm. people. And so for those in the GOP, um, trying to figure out, are we really about democracy, where we're going to play by the same rules, yeah. or not? And um, that's the big question, I think, at stake. You know, and one of the things that I think some of us have struggled to sort of get our arms around is, how are Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, two female Republicans, such big advocates of Christian nationalism, and you had this gentleman on who is... You made it clear. Mm-hmm. Every marriage is a kingdom, and the man is the king. Right. I mean, it is sort of like this is one of those where it's 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 hard to wrap my my arms around that. It it absolutely is. And I asked him. I mean, like I said, why can't you be equal in a marriage? And he's like, well, we weren't made that way to be equal. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is not about biology. It's about intelligence. It's about dignity. It's about who you are. But that's not how he looks at it. He takes a very literal reading of the Bible. And I can't understand why a woman would would submit to this. Let's pivot. How much to the campaign trope? I think a lot of these self-described Christian nationalists, statewide level, Carlos, are going to lose. It's probably, I think Doug Mastriano is more likely to lose than win. He's not trying, he's running an odd campaign. But just being the nominee, 
haven't the seeds been planted for more of these candidates? Well, it depends, Chuck. I mean, this could be part of the trap that Republicans have set up for themselves where they elect the most, quote unquote, conservative candidate out of primaries. And then these people just Mm -hmm. can't win. So eventually this movement will likely just be extinguished because people Mm -hmm. get tired of losing. That's one theory. But certainly, I mean, it shows that at least there is a a critical mass of support that can can get these people past primaries. And by the way, going back to Christianity, and Ann, maybe you could shed some light on this, but... Christianity. I mean, Jesus Christ invited people to follow. Never, it, it was never an imposition, right? Because twist their arm. Let's put it like that. He did not twist their arm. You can come or not. You know, you want to follow this guy, you don't. That's, that's all it is. Anthea, you're concerned that this that this spreads. That even these losing Christian nationalist candidates, by losing, they've been mainstreamed. I mean, you know, we're going to get criticized doing this program because, yes. hey, you're, you're going to bring more attention, and that attention inevitably is going to lead to people, oh, it's more mainstream than I thought. Yeah, and I think one of the important things to remember is that if we don't pay attention to this right now, we may be on the losing end later. I mm-hmm. think, you know, to tie off of this comment about the GOP, the GOP has had slogans like this a long time. It's been, whether it's been Make America Great Again or American Exceptionalism, all these kinds of things, right? What is more interesting right now is that the religious and the political are being put together. Yeah. And now that makes for a very powerful mix. And I think whether or not people win in November, we still have to contend with this in 2024. And there's something else, though, going on here, which is sort of uh, the country is growing more secular, which mm-hmm. almost at the exact same time, those that are religious are almost becoming more fundamentalists. Right. But uh, almost out of fear of this growing secularization. Yeah, and that's, that's what I think it gets to, is yeah. that there is a great deal of fear. And if you look at the issues that they grab onto, the issue of abortion, the issue of same-sex marriage, opposing same-sex marriage, the issue of gender identity, all of those are driven by fear. Mm-hmm. And I asked Pastor Wilson that. I said, America is becoming less Christian. It, fewer Americans want to be part of organized religion. And he just sees that as, as a further challenge. He believes he can change minds. And Andrew, is it almost a feature that Moscow is the place trying to do this because they almost want to be reactionary? To the majority of the population, it's easier to find fundamentalists mm-hmm. in a reactionary, in a place that, 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 you know, maybe you feel like you're the outsider. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the insights of, of sociology is it's uh, easiest to find who we are when we know who we're not. And so when you can define yourself against who you're not, that's really powerful. It creates very powerful in-group bonds. Um, we're going to pull together. We're going to face the outside threat, the things that we're afraid of. Um, and it becomes a really central part of your identity. And, and that's what's so powerful about Christian nationalism. All right. The separation of church and state. How, how strong is this? still in our country, Anthea? I think the idea of it is very strong. The reality of it is not. And, you know, if we think back to Christian Coalition and all these other groups that were passing out voter guides in the churches in the 1990s, if we think about the ways in which, you know, Trump voters invoked invoked all of this and Trump himself invoked this, we think about the ways in which candidates now really play to all of this. I would say that the separation of church and state is very thin, if not not existent. Very quickly, Carlos, if you tried to run a campaign that said, I'm going to be so strict about separating church and state, I'm not even going to try to campaign at churches. Could you win? I think so. It depends where in the country, yeah. but in, in more suburban districts, I think you still okay. could. You're more in, optimistic in, about in it rural areas, yeah. much harder. <laughs> all right. What a terrific conversation. Thank you all. Thank you all for being with us on this first episode of our fifth season here at Meet the Press Reports. The next episode, get ready to meet the American oligarchs. 
Are we just auctioning off American political power to the highest bidding billionaire? We're going to pull back the curtain on some of the recent big money players and booms in this year's politics. I'll see you next time on Meet the Press Reports and this Sunday on Meet the Press. Welcome to another episode of Meet the Press Reports. And this week, it's a deep dive into the American oligarchy. We've heard politicians say it before. They claim they want to take big money out of politics, but they never seem to do it, do they? So just how much money is in our politics and specifically in our elections? Well, here's one truism. It continues to grow. Through June in the 2022 cycle, there was nearly $10 billion raised for just House and Senate races. I'm not counting gubernatorial races here, just House and Senate. This level of fundraising our election system is growing exponentially. Because if you go back to 2014, there was just under $5 billion raised for the House and the Senate alone. And we're basically already past that mark. It was just over a little of half of what it was in the first 18 months of the 2022 cycle. And we know it's going to be well over $10 billion now. But the truly new phenomenon here is the mega donor class. In 2014, only three people decided to donate at least $10 million of their own money to various House and Senate races. In 2022, that number is now up to 18, a six-fold increase. And even as we see this wealthy donor class pour millions of dollars into our elections each year, there's millions more in dark money that they put on, uh, pour in on top of it. Those are funneled through nonprofits and basically are untraceable. But as the list of individuals donating millions and billions of dollars grows, so do concerns that political campaigns are essentially being hijacked by this wealthy class, controlled by this donor class, made up of individuals who have this outsized influence, not just who wins the elections and who runs the country, but what issues are even debated in these campaigns. NBC News correspondent Jacob Ward has more. Where have you seen money make its way into politics. Where have I not seen money make its way into politics is the, probably the better question. Abigail Disney's grandfather, Roy, co-founded the Disney company with his brother, Walt. She grew up surrounded by the ultra-rich and is now a filmmaker and professional critic of the billionaire class. You have an ultra-wealthy class whose life and interests are entirely divorced from the reality of everyday Americans. The things that concern them are not a concern the everyday American just don't come up, you know, if you're ultra-wealthy. Do you think the ultra-rich, if anything, are less qualified than yes. everyday people to just be empathetic, think about the problems of the world? There are studies that show that the wealthier you get, the less nice you become. In her upcoming documentary called The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, Disney explores the collapse of the American dream through the lens of the happiest place on Earth. Her finger points directly at the top. A custodian would have to work for 2,000 years to make what Bob Iger makes in one. Do we live in an oligarchy, do you think, in, in America right now? Yes, I think we live in an oligarchy. 
much of our oligarchy in this country is a result of the government privileging either an industry or a group of individuals within an industry or or keeping classes of people away um, from the, the corridors of power. And the data is clear. That privileged class of people is injecting huge amounts of money into politics on both sides of the aisle. An NBC News analysis shows that so far this year, 18 individuals have each donated over $10 million to this midterm race. That's a total of $504 million, over half a billion dollars in political contributions. In 2014, only three people contributed over $10 million each. Good evening. Among the most active political players is Peter Thiel. The Silicon Valley tech billionaire and PayPal founder has thrown tens of millions of dollars behind just two Senate candidates. In Ohio, he's backing fellow venture capitalist and political outsider J.D. Vance. In Arizona, Teal donated heavily to the campaign of Blake Masters. Each clinched their respective GOP nominations. And while Masters is happy to espouse his far-right political positions... In Arizona, there's an invasion at our southern border. He's much less forthcoming with details about the financial relationship with Teal, who's estimated to be worth $3.8 billion. We're just trying to talk about campaign finance. Producer Ezra Kaplan tried to press the issue with Masters outside an event closed to the press in Scottsdale last month. Peter gave what he gave, and I'm, I'm grateful that he supported that outside group. And I'm working hard every day to raise the money internal to the campaign that we need to go out and spread the message. Will you Thank be able you. to stay independent with the money? Masters is now set to face incumbent Mark Kelly in November. Kelly enjoys a much larger war chest from mostly small donors plus several super PACs. Masters, however, has received most of his support from a single super PAC funded by Teal. And since the primary, that funding seems to have dried up. Peter Teal declined our interview request, as did several other billionaires we approached. His biographer, however, says this is of a piece with who Teal is. What he wants is uh, to pay as little as possible in taxes, to live with as much freedom, to do what he wants, uh, whenever he wants, and to have lots of government contracts for his businesses. It's this idea that people like himself, people like Peter Thiel and, and Mark Zuckerberg and the other CEOs of these very successful tech companies are these genius capital allocators and genius administrators, and wouldn't it be better if they kind of ran the world. This is an extremely politically active group. Matt Lacombe is a professor of political science at Case Western Reserve University and has been studying the political behavior of this elusive group for more than 10 years. Over 90% of the, the billionaires we studied had made political contributions that we huh. could track down. That's a much, much higher proportion uh, than average Americans or even well-off Americans um, who we might think of as being generally politically active. What Lacombe and his co-authors have found is that while these billionaires have enormous influence, they stay out of sight, something he calls stealth politics. An overwhelming majority of them stay totally silent or are completely vague mm -hmm. about what their political preferences uh, uh, and policy wishes are. Uh, uh, and moreover, we find that many of them take political actions that would push economic policies uh, in conservative directions that clash with what uh, average Americans say that they want uh, through public opinion polls. And that secrecy has the support of the Supreme Court. When Citizens United was decided in 2010, it helped create a new category of political organization, the super PAC, and a new category of dark money nonprofits that allow political donations from billionaires and others to be effectively unlimited and to go unreported. We expect this court to fully utilize the First Amendment 
to protect the rights of people of average means. James Bopp was the architect of the landmark case and says his intention was to empower everyday people to pool political donations inside companies and labor unions, something he says the framers would have approved of. But Citizens United also wound up empowering the richest people in American history. Do you draw any connection between what you helped to create with Citizens United and the sort of some of the new tactics that academics are telling us are starting to emerge? Well, uh, you know, there's always been an advantage to have money. Mm-hmm. Surprise. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's been, ab- there's advantages to having money. Thank you very much for making What's new is how and when that money is being deployed. So primary elections tend to involve less money, uh, and they tend to be less visible. Uh, all of that means that, that the actions of powerful people uh, and the money they might have to spend can go farther. Let's think about this tactically for a second. If you're Peter Thiel and you've already put $10 million into the candidacy of J.D. Vance here in Ohio, maybe you don't have to worry about the general election. I mean, right, once he's won the primary, maybe the little R next to his name will carry him the rest of the way in today's hyper-partisan political climate. But it wasn't always like this. Once upon a time, it was culturally unpopular in the United States to be, well, rich. Today, we as a society tend to put the ultra-rich up on a pedestal. Now we're looking to people and admiring them for the quality of being able to become very, very wealthy. So there was a massive shift. Do you think that explains the political activism of billionaires, that they just feel, well, I'm qualified to make decisions for everybody because I've amassed this fortune through my pluck and my brains? That is exactly, I think, what's going on. Your activism, your filmmaking, your speaking out, even in front of Congress about this stuff, makes me wonder, do you think you would get involved in politics? Do you want to create a candidate? I think my unique position in this world is to use my position in the oligarchy to put the oligarchy out of business. My thanks to NBC News correspondent Jacob Ward for that report earlier this week. I sat down with Sam Bankman-Free. He's the CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. You may have seen their ads. And he's one of America's youngest billionaires. And recently, he's used some of the money he's made to become one of the biggest donors in this year's midterm cycle, including in the state of Oregon, where he broke a spending record to back a single Democratic House candidate who ended up losing a primary big. You've uh, spent your money a little bit differently in politics than others have. Didn't go well in Oregon. What did you learn and how are you adapting? Because you strike me as somebody, you try something, you look at how it works. Okay, let me try this this way. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, part of this is, look, you know, stuff happens. You know, I do what I can, do what I think is right and, and adapt. And, you know, in Oregon, like there's a candidate who I thought had a chance of being, you know, one of the biggest advocates for pandemic prevention um, you know, in D.C., I think one of the things I learned is, look, there's really diminishing marginal returns here, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's no matter how much you spend in any one place, there's just a limit to how much impact it's going to have. There's a limit to how much support it, it can be. And I, I think that was the biggest takeaway from it was just, uh, you know. Do you think you spent too much money there in hindsight? Yeah, I think it's probably right. So there's a point of saturation that you've learned. Yeah, that's right. What about your individual influence? You've seen what's happened to George Soros. Yep. He's been politically attacked. It gets, you, know, I, yep. you can make the same case for the Adelson family, both Absolutely. Sheldon and Miriam, right? Yep. These are two people that have been dominant over the last decade. Yep. Um, are you prepared for that? So in the end, I want to do what's right for the country and, you know, not optimize for people saying nice things about me. If people say mean things about me, I, I can take it. But, but the other thing that I would say is I'm really aiming to do this in a bipartisan way. 
And I think that's something you've given which, to some Republicans, but it's been very targeted. It's been targeted. And, and I think the reason for that is that I don't at its core view this as a Democrats versus Republicans thing where my core goal is a, you know, boosting a, a, a party. Mm-hmm. I view this as having constructive people, whatever party they're part of is incredibly valuable for DC and something I've just seen on the ground where people who are willing to get together and try and do the important things for the country. They can compromise their party and they're who save the day at the end, at the end. And, and so I'm happy to support, you know, across the aisle in, in either direction. So there are going to be some people to watch this and say, Rich guy's got his own agenda here. He's not telling us. Why shouldn't folks be a little bit skeptical of your real motives here, Mitt, that this is really all about crypto? This is really all about your business, which is regulating what you do. Right. It's a good question. And frankly, everyone should always be skeptical of things like this, right? I'm not going to tell people that they should get anyone a free pass on it. Um, and I think what I'd say is like, look at the evidence, try and trace out what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really funny. Sometimes I'll read these articles and they'll say, you know, SBF donates to candidate something crypto, something. And the entire article will be like, we're trying really hard to find the crypto angle and we haven't found it yet. The candidates have no statements. They don't know what a Bitcoin is. There's a crypto angle. We're still looking. And it's like, no, like that was. People aren't taking you at your word. People aren't taking me at my word. And, and I understand that. And I think what it says, and do the research, you know, look at the, mm-hmm. the policies that I'm supporting, the candidates that I'm supporting, you know, and many of these people, I have no idea what their position is on. Okay, but you now will have lawmakers return your calls a lot easier than the average person, right? So your money is effective in that respect, and you are going to be able to make your case in front of members of Congress because you're willing to spend money. Have you thought about that? I think it's probably true, and, and frankly, I think that there is value from the pandemic prevention side there, being able to, again, get in front of them and say, hey, look, this is a big issue. I think that, you know, on the crypto side, the way that I view that is as... I have a duty as a member of the industry to try and get us regulated, to try and move the industry in a more responsible direction. And I think that requires engagement. I think it'd be irresponsible of me not to, to, to engage, um, you know, with Capitol Hill, with regulators. And the things that I've been arguing for are more regulation for the industry. I think that's what's right for the country. I don't know if that's what's right for a company, but it's what needs to happen. Let me ask you this. Should it be so easy for you to become a big donor in our political system? Do you think your money should be uh, as relevant in our system as it can become? It's a good question. And it's so hard to view this outside of the lens of what is going on right now, of what different equal These are the rules that are. And you're the sitting there are, and right. you're like, hey, if this is how it works, then I'm going to participate. I guess I'm asking you, what do you think should it the should be? Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for thoughts of overhauling things in one direction or another. I've thought about this. I don't feel confident that I know what the right answer is, right? You could imagine a like highly transparent regime where the emphasis was on full transparency of contributions. You could imagine a capped regime like what we had, you know, at least in larger part before Citizens United. There are arguments for that. Um, there, you know, I frankly don't feel like I feel confident what the right answer is there. I certainly don't feel like we've necessarily reached it as a society, though. You think every money you spend in politics should be disclosed publicly? Are you comfortable with that? I think that I I think what I would say is, you know, if there was a norm where every dollar that ever in donated mm-hmm. in politics was to be disclosed publicly, um, I would have a, a lot of sympathy for that. I think I might support it. I haven't thought carefully about it enough to know. But well, it I sounds so. like what you're saying is maybe there's some donations that you have made that you wouldn't make if you knew they were going to be immediately public. I don't generally think about it that way. I generally Fair think enough. of it as like these are these are the right uh, you know the right contributions to make. Mm-hmm. I think that the uh, uh, and I think that there is a thing where 
it's important what the norms are because that's what press is going to judge everything by, right? right? And it's important that there is the right context. Um, and I think that you would see fairly different treatment of things if everything was made transparent. I think that there would be advantages to that system. You made your money in some ways by finding a loophole, right? And in, in the exchange rates and how the exchange yep. system, and, and you saw something was missing. I'm curious now, bringing a fresh set of eyes to how yep. campaign politics works, yeah. to how the funding mechanisms work. Yeah. Have you found this sort of gaping hole, flaw, or, or loophole that you're like, how come nobody else has noticed this? So to the extent that I have, I think what it is, is people are just not engaged enough in policy. Mm-hmm. They're not engaged enough in what's going on in D.C. When you and say people, people meaning the electorate or people meaning elected officials? Oh, I mean the electorate. Okay. And, 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 and I think that there's sort of this notion that I certainly ascribe to at one point that I think a lot of people do that you can't actually have, you know, your vote doesn't actually matter, that, that, that this is all sort of irrelevant. And I think that just turns out to not be right. And even if you just look at voting, right, like, is it worth it to vote? The answer is yes, right? Does your vote matter for elections? The answer is yes. And if you do the math, mm-hmm. it's actually extremely impactful. Every person's vote. I mean, obviously, if it's a presidential election, it matters if you're in a swing state. Um, but, you know, you're having impact over millions of dollars in expectation of what happens. You have talked that a billion dollars is perhaps your ceiling for 2024. How would you imagine spending that? Candidates or your own organization to maybe educate the public? So it all is going to depend on the details. And, and I really do mean that in that. Does like, it depend on who's running? Does it depend on if it's Biden and Trump type of thing? That's one thing it's going to depend on. It's, and it's not just the presidency as well. It's more generally like I want to support great public servants. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you imagine an election where everyone running on both sides of the aisle for every race was an amazing public servant, I say, great. You know, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not needed here. Like this is, you know, I'm, I'm happy. It, and, you know, I think that if you had the opposite where everyone was horrific, which obviously won't happen, I think then what I would start to get to is there needs to be a, an informational campaign mm-hmm. to alert people to how poorly people are, are being nominated here, right? And, and so it's going to be really, really responsive to the weeds of which direction things go. Sam Beckman, pre- appreciate you coming on. Not every major donor <laughs> will talk about why they do it. I appreciate that you did. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. When we come back, how great of a threat is big money in politics to our democracy? We're going to discuss that more. Stay with us. Welcome back. Campaign finance regulations have been tried and tried again. Can you regulate money? But are there more loopholes now than ever? Joined by Fash Shakur, he's the chief political advisor to Bernie Sanders. He worked at a, a longtime think tank, the Center for American Progress, for that. And Trevor Burris, he's a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Thank you both for joining us. So let me, I'm going to start with, 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 with uh, my friend from Cato here, because I'm, I'm curious if you accept the premise that there's too many wealthy donors in politics. No. Uh, I, I think that, as we saw from the interview, donors, we, we assume some sort of nefarious motive, but they actually are just trying to support causes they believe in. If, and let's say that that's 90% or most of them, and when they support a cause you can believe in, uh, and you try and get the message out there, that's what people tend to think about the things they believe in, right? So if you are against the NRA, you're against the money the NRA has, but you might be for every town for gun safety and people trying to spend money to change minds on that. So I don't think that billionaires are just per se a bad class or that they are have the same views at all. We can look at the, they don't have the same views. They're not just in the interest of billionaires. They're trying to get different ideas out there. And money is how you get information out there. That's where are you in this? 
money has a corrosive impact on politics. And it's not just merely through the influence of elections. It influences the motivations of policymakers from the top all the way down to the bottom, not only at the federal level, but if you go down, it has even a deeper impact if you go down to the state houses. You don't win state legislative seats unless you have money. It is nearly impossible if you look around the country to try to win without the influence. And if you look at the influence of large donors, Often, especially in this day and age where so much is broken in Washington, D.C., their biggest influence is the state legislatures, where if you just look at the industries that are funding them, you see where politics and policies flow. All right. Do you agree that money should be more transparent in where it comes from? Do you? Do, are you I'm okay with that. I mean, I, w- I would I would allow more money to be given to candidates so you could actually get startup candidates and get new candidates out there with new ideas. As is that the probably the only plausible way to figure regulating money? It is clear to me it's exactly. impossible to regulate money because there's always a lawyer who finds a new. Well, not only a the new, lawyer, a but the law as it has been construed by the Supreme Court has now said you know money is a form of speech. But I obviously I'm on the side of an argument legal argument that is in the minority that believes it should be banned from politics. Well, we're like politics. a generation and, away from that. Yes, right. and we should have federally funded elections. That's what I believe in. Now, can we get there incrementally? But that, that is the North Star that I point to. All right. So short of that, uh, uh, rigorous transparency. Yes. I mean, and, and in what form, right? Because you want voters to know and understand. So if you look at the Disclose Act, what they're suggesting is that the donors to large super PACs would be listed by name at the end of an ad. Mm-hmm. Now, is that sufficient? Do, do I know enough about a name, Peter Thiel, mm-hmm. Sam Bakeman fried to make a judgment about that ad? I would argue, you know, we got to do a little bit better even about that. I think you got to have better disclosure and transparency around what the motivations are of these individuals. On the federally funded elections, for example, like the reason that's never going to work and it won't ever happen is the only way that could be fair is if sitting members of Congress voted to give opponents more money to spend against them than they currently have as incumbents. The biggest advantage is incumbency. And you need to outspend to get incumbency. 90% plus retention rate, right? You get all the money if you're an incumbent. And if you want to challenge them, you need to raise money. And what will not happen, as long as the foxes are guarding the hen house, as long as these politicians are making the rules by which they get elected, they're not going to make a fair election system. So federally funded thing, sure, let me imagine this thing. Triple the donation amount for people challenging sitting members of Congress. That makes it fair. Never going to happen. Just a quick kind of point to that. If you, Trevor started this so, conversation yeah. you know, saying that essentially he doesn't believe that money governs uh, the outcome of a lot of it's elections. It's important, but it's not everything. Exactly. And I, start, I, I jump off that premise, and that's why. So if you gave a grassroots candidate enough money to compete to get the word out. You and I are agreeing, essentially, that you have a chance to win. So we are now debating how much of a federally funded uh, amount would you, would you, would you, a candidate need to be seated with in order to have a fair and competitive shot? I'm saying that Congress will never pass that law. <laughs> well, let's start, though. But the one thing that you might be able to get him to do, because during the McCain-Feingold debate, Mitch McConnell was for instant disclosure. He is, I've always challenged some people on the left, go introduce Mitch McConnell's counterbill to McCain-Feingold and see where people stand on there. Instant disclosure that's a little bit more than the Disclose Act that said, that allowed people, you want to give, Peter Thiel shouldn't have to give to a super PAC. Peter Thiel can give $5 million directly to Blake Masters' campaign, let his campaign deal with it. But every time he runs an ad, he says, I'm, I'm Blake Masters and my campaign is funded by, and you have to list any individual that gives you more than, say, a million dollars. Yeah, so I, again, I, we, I, this is a town of compromise. I'm not for having to d- disclose yourself. And, and again, there, everyone knows this, what causes you give to. If you're, if you're a pro-choice person, you're living in Alabama, you don't want people to know that you're giving to pro-choice candidates, maybe. It's you know very important in terms of donor privacy. You have Planned Parenthood and the NRA on the same side, right? Why, and when it comes to candidates, why should they get? Why should, a, why should a wealthier citizen basically get a special privilege like that. 
the special privilege of not knowing who's given. Everyone gets that privilege. Well, intervening in an election in particular yeah. is what Chuck's talking about, right? Like, so if you've decided, I want to engage in the public debate of influencing an election and telling people who they should vote for, who they shouldn't vote for, why should you be able to operate in so, the shadows and the dark? So, again, I, I said I'd make a compromise, we, and it would be above a pretty high limit. Because, like, one thing, I'm pretty skeptical about members of Congress. I think we all are. <laughs> but right now, we have a campaign limit $2,900. I even think the price tag of a member of Congress is higher than $2,900. Right. I think if you really want to get them to do something, you're going to give them at least fifty, hundred thousand dollars $100,000, who knows? But below that, people shouldn't have to disclose. We don't need to know who our neighbors are giving money to in any way, especially if it's below a, a non-corrupting level. But the influence of money in politics, less so now about the direct money to a candidate and more so around outside spending and races in favor of those candidates. Well, so you're this talking is about, to that's because of Let's the talk about that's McCain. I, I, yeah. Look, I actually think McCain-Feingold m- might have... Uh, been a mistake because it took the money, took the political parties out of the big money right. game. Yes. And then all of a sudden we had no transparency into who was given money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you accept that? Right. Yeah, I mean, it might have been a mistake. Yeah, I think that's right. And mm-hmm. if you look at 501c4 explosions, yeah. there's also no cops on the beat. So if you look at the way in which 501c4s are supposed to be construed and how they're supposed to spend money in elections, these outside spending vehicles that dump millions and millions of dollars on air, they weren't supposed to be doing electioneering. And yet that is the primary purpose of most of these organizations well, because nobody is stopping them. Right. The, we, the IRS made an attempt and, they that, tried, got, and, and everyone, that got and that got weaponized. From the left and, and the right, everyone right, did But it got weaponized by, by political actors. Absolutely. The right. IRS should not be regulating the but I mean, so look, outside groups, again, we can't forget the bigger picture. Politics matters a lot now to a lot of people in this country. It's very, very divided. That The spending's going to come in in that way, and it's going to be more outside groups, so we can call them dark money. It's just that people don't necessarily have to disclose what they're giving to politics, and I don't think they should, except for maybe some extreme circumstances. And so, yes, these outside groups are a product of the limits. We know that's in 76. You limit yeah. that much to campaigns, and then that's going to go somewhere else, and we're going to have these outside groups spending. And the candidates don't like it, by the way. They want that money, and they can't control the message of the outside groups. What would happen if you could collect unlimited amounts of money in your in presidential campaign? What would that turn I mean, into? It, and it was and it was disclosed, but what, what would be your fear? I worry about a lot because I, if there's a recent Supreme Court ruling that says you can go into debt and then be paid back uh, later if you went Ted into Cruz. debt. Yes, Ted Cruz's case. And so basically what it that's essentially the, assumes that's is a that... a different story. It's, yeah. it, well, it's, it's the same kind of argument is that if one individual could in bankroll Chuck Todd to run for Senate, you know that the only, really, the only benefactor that I need and the, the person to, whose allegiance I need to have throughout my entire life and career is to ensure that so-and-so is happy with me. And that influences your choices on anything and everything, right? You're thinking about how does that individual inf- think about this issue, that issue, and that issue? What if we don't think about his allegiance? What, what, you ask what would happen? We would have more dynamic politics, right? You have to raise money in these small amounts. That means you have to get a broad brush. If there is someone out there who says, like that happened to Eugene McCarthy in 68, I have to go back this far because we have those campaign come in. He wanted to end the war in Vietnam. He wanted to challenge a sitting Democrat president for the nomination. He got donations from the Mott family of $600,000 to do it. But Trevor, what, what you're intentionally doing when you say a millionaire or billionaire is going to give that much money is you're saying all of the other people who might give 5 or $10 don't right. matter anymore. That's, That's the biggest problem we're having. Well, this is a debate. We're not going to end here, but I do have to go. <laughs> the guys were terrific in representing these two points of view. That's all we have for me. The press reports this week. Thanks for being here. Next week, I meet the press reports the wide and growing world of U.S. gun culture. The more armed Americans are, the more armed Americans get. And the farther the country moves from what some people believe is effective gun safety legislation. 
We're going to talk to a diverse group of gun owners about the safety measures they want, the ones they fear, and the impact the thriving gun culture has on American life. I'll see you next week on Meet the Press Reports and this Sunday on Meet the Press. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.